0: Everyone, to episode 113, Heart Patch. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen?
1: It's late March, my dear, and that means March Madness, you know, perennial high seed Duke, my alma mater they usually disappoint me even though they're storied their franchise they win every year and da 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 they've had a lot of championships but usually they just bomb out early and i was waiting for that this year i was almost hoping for it so i could move on with my life
0: right don't but get your hopes up don't stay yeah. in don't keep it no. in but yeah, they were they in there in. They oh they were in there they so, so many of there. those knuckle biter games right you're uh, like well, down to the last well.
1: To the last To the last missed shot So they were in there until they were out of there And so now I'm both happy and sad Sad because it's nice to have something to live for in the end of March when it's still cold in the city But you know, happy because now I can move on. It's time to move on.
0: <laughs> time to move on for you. That's right. I just kind of live vicariously through friends of mine like you who are, who are <laughs> interested. I'm like, oh, it's basketball again. That's nice. <laughs> I like yeah. going outside and looking at the flowers poking up out of the ground. That's what I'm doing. It's the end of Not March. Me. and The flowers are blooming.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I've been in a cave, Pete. I've been in a cave, but I'm uh, coming out, and coming out of hibernation.
0: All right, troglodytes, it is time to get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you'll also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at stemcellpodcast on Twitter, stemcellpodcast on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe. We're on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can download new episodes automatically to your device. We have a great interview today and also a wonderful roundup in just a minute. But later in the show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Nanad Bursach, and he's going to talk about a technology his group has developed and tested as a candidate therapy for myocardial infarction and heart failure.
1: Yes, Kiki, my man, my man of hearts, we're going to do that. But first, this week, on theme with our guests, we want to remind readers of Connexon's Muscle Cell News, a free weekly hand-compiled newsletter that covers all three types of muscle, cardiac, smooth, and skeletal. Stay up to date with the latest peer-reviewed publications, industry news, policy events, and jobs in the muscle cell research field Subscribe to Muscle Cell News at H-T-T-P, colon. You never hear that anymore, do you? The H-T-T-P, but it's there. www.musclecellnews.com.er. We got an E-R at the end there. Musclecellnews.com.er. All right, Kiki, let's round it up.
0: Yeah, let's round it up. Let's be smooth like muscle. Mm. Oh, let's start out with some good news. Can we do that?
1: Mm, For a change. Can
0: I actually do that for a change? Yes. Oh, my goodness. We have been complaining about research spending and budgets for the United States government. Well, Congress finally has completed spending plan for 2018's fiscal year and signed it into law. And you know what? It was actually good news for science. This is great. They estimate... Research and development spending in 2018 will reach $176.8 billion, which is an increase of 12.8%, or $20.1 billion above 2017, the fiscal year estimated R&D. Total federal R&D spending would reach its highest point ever in inflation-adjusted dollars. Basic and applied research funding would receive its largest year-over-year increase since the 2009 economic stimulus package. Well, I mean, that isn't saying much since there hasn't been much increases since 2009 with that stimulus package, but this is exciting news. The National Institutes of Health receives a 3 billion dollar which comes out to about 8.3% increase to $37 billion, and that's above the increase proposed by the House and the Senate in their versions of the spending bills, and it's a rejection, total rejection of the White House's proposed 22% cut. It also includes an additional $414 million for Alzheimer's disease research, $1.8 billion, and a $27 million boost to a total of 543. million. Million for clinical and translational science funding. The National Science Foundation gets $7.8 billion, which is a $295 million increase of 3.9%. And it's going to grow the research account by about 5% to $6.3 billion. There is an increase as well for NASA's science programs, which is great news with all of its research satellites in orbit, to $457 million. The increase is $457 million to $6.2 billion total. The bill increases the agency's planetary science program by 21%, which is $382 million, totaling $2.2 billion. Overall, NASA gets $1.1 billion above what it got in 2017, bringing it to a total of $20.7 billion. So science... Space science, health science, there's a lot of money being put in there. Congress did a good one.
1: Yeah, weren't we all waiting to lose money and now we're getting more than ever? <laughs> I'm confused, but I guess we just can't complain anymore. What are we going to complain about?
0: I don't know. Maybe we can stop complaining. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, no. We we'll,
1: gotta... we'll find some. We
0: must always be observant. Always be watching out, but this is fantastic, and I don't know, <laughs> I think Congress is afraid of all getting dementia and Alzheimer's disease. They're like, here, we're going to put some money in Alzheimer's disease because I got to remember things. And the men's. There's new news for the men's. This is very exciting news for all the women out there.
1: I would say it's exciting for men, too, <laughs> Kiki, all right? Don't get ahead of yourself. Okay. We like- to right. not have babies.
0: <laughs> this news, yes, this is for people who do not want to have babies or who would like to plan the moment in which they would like to have babies. So far, historically, since the what, late 60s, 70s, hormonal contraception has been in the hands of women. Women have had a hormonal birth control pill, enabling them to avoid monthly periods and pregnancy. But there's been a question for a long time. Why can't we create a hormonal birth control treatment for men? Why can't men be part of this process as well? Well, research has finally created a prototype pill that may fill this role. It's called DMAU, dimethandrolone undecanoate. And this is a candidate for a male birth control pill. In the trials, none of the 83 men who completed the treatment suffered any troubling symptoms that would be normally associated with a drop in testosterone, according to the reports by the researchers at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting on March 18th. So this hasn't been published yet, but just reported at a a society meeting. However, they tested three different doses of this drug, which becomes an active compound called dimethandrolone in the body. And dimethandrolone is designed to avoid damage to the liver, which can happen when you have changes, dramatic changes in levels of testosterone. The three different doses were tested. Men on the highest dose experienced A dramatic fall in luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, and testosterone from taking one pill a day, just like the female birth control pill. And these low levels of LH, FSH, and testosterone are known to prevent sperm development. Side effects? Very similar to the female pill. Men gained a little bit of weight. And additionally, they saw a drop in their good high-density cholesterol levels. Even though low testosterone can lead to loss of sexual drive and function, a very small number of men, only 8 out of the 83, reported having a lowered sex drive while on the pill. And tests indicated there was no effect on the liver, which is good news. So this clinical trial shows no bad effects of the drug necessarily. So the men all handled it well. And so now they're going to launch a three-month clinical study to test sperm counts in the men that are taking the drug. And so then, if that's good, we'll test it for couples for contraception. So we're getting there.
1: That low T thing is a little bit scary, though, wouldn't you say?
0: Uh, Not for me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh... I mean, Maybe we'll
0: find low testosterone. Maybe a bonus. I don't know. Men will be less aggressive when they're on the pill. I mean, what are the benefits of low testosterone? Let's think about that.
1: Have you ever thought maybe low T would be a good thing? Well, I would say (laughs) the idea that the guys didn't have any reported no reduced libido, or few did, would be encouraging. But I would say when the gloves are off, so to speak, that really ramps your libido up. These these guys are like, here, take this pill, and you don't have to worry about birth control. These guys are probably firing on all cylinders. <laughs> so we're gonna have to have a double-blind control here before I'm I'm ready to sign up for this low T. You know what I'm saying?
0: I think the double-blind control is something that will absolutely be necessary. I mean, you start out with these clinical trials just checking to see if there are negative adverse effects of the drugs, and it's not double-blind controlled initially, but that should happen moving forward i mean it could be what if it's like placebo effect i'm taking a pill to make me less virile of course i'm not gonna feel good about my sexual prowess you know
1: yeah it could be that or it could be maybe it's psychological (laughs) but it's psychological come on you can have a low tea you need some low tea kiki your tea is way too high i'm just too aggressive that's right you're too aggressive (laughs) you need to chill chill
0: out kiki Oh, well, if people can handle this drug, DMAU, what about bees and pesticides? How do they handle those pesticides? Low (laughs) T. Not necessarily. No, a research study out March 22nd in Current Biology looked at how neonicotinoids, the pesticides that are used in crops that have been linked to negative effects on bee health, and they're trying to see how honeybees and bumblebees, how their physiology and their metabolism interacts with neonicotinoids in order to eventually maybe design versions of these pesticides that are less harmful to the bees. And so what they found in this research, looking at a specific type of neonic called thiacloprid, research scientists discovered that there are enzymes that honeybees and bumblebees make that allow them to break down the pesticide. And so the research scientists focused on these enzymes that are known as P450s. They metabolize toxic chemicals, breaking them down before they affect the bee nervous systems. They use drugs to inhibit groups of P450 enzymes. And the family they specifically looked at, called CYP9Q, when it was inhibited, that increased the sensitivity to the thiocloprid pesticide by about 170 times. It led the bees to die from a much smaller dose of pesticide. So if we can understand how the bees' protective systems interact with these pesticides, it could tell us more about why or how honeybees and bumblebees are affected in the wild by these things? Maybe during different stages of development, these enzymes work at different uh, efficiency levels and also could the pesticides be designed any better to not harm the honeybees and bees we want to keep around while still protecting crops from pests?
1: We have to use the pesticides, right? That's the bottom line. There's no option to like not do the pesticides. Is that the concession?
0: At this point in time, I mean, that there are a lot of, you know, organic farmers who argue that We don't need them. There are people arguing that differences in the way that we farm, that we've become too monoculture, and that if we were to increase the diversity, allowing weeds to pop up in our crops, that having more diverse crops and allowing different species of insects and animals to exist around our crops, that actually will protect them better and they will become less Damaged by pests, but this is something that's still playing out when you're talking about the agricultural industrial scale that we need to feed our human population. Yeah, do we need pesticides? Do we need herbicides? Do we need genetic modification? What do we need, and how do we make it work best? Big question.
1: Uh, We need all of it, seems like the scale we're operating, we're used to it at least. We like it this way, it seems.
0: We do, yes. We're getting to be a big mark on the planet. There are a lot of people out there, right? And we need a lot of food. We use a lot of things. We're also creating a lot of waste. And my final story for today, I mean, started on a good note. I'm ending on the low note here The Pacific Garbage Patch. Have you heard of the Pacific Garbage Patch, Daylon?
1: I've heard. uh, Not the details. I don't (laughs) think I want the details on this.
0: Yeah. Oh, the gyre. Yes, there is a gyre, a place in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the North and the South, actually, where plastic floating waste is accumulating. And it's been... Known to be this huge area and it contains largish pieces of plastic down to the microscopic microplastics that we think are going to be causing a lot of problems environmentally. This Pacific garbage patch between California and Hawaii, we've known that it was pretty big, but there is a new estimate of its size. And the scientists Publishing in Scientific Reports on March 22nd estimate that at least 79,000 tons of material spread over 1.6 million square kilometers exists within this patch. It's equivalent to the mass of more than 6,500 school buses. And it is, according to this estimate, this is a pretty wide range, four to 16 times as heavy As past estimates. Much of the plastic in the patch comes from humans' activities in the ocean, so fishing and shipping. About half of this total mass is from discarded fishing nets. A lot of the litter contains durable plastics, polyethylene, polypropylene, which are designed to be able to survive in marine environments, so like the bumpers on the sides of boats or bits of boats that have broken off. And to get this new size and mass estimate, Laurent Le Breton of the Ocean Cleanup, a nonprofit foundation in the Netherlands, and his colleagues, they trawled samples from the ocean surface. They also took aerial images and simulated particle pathways based on plastic sources and ocean circulation. The aerial images really allowed the more accurate tallies and measurements of the larger plastic pieces, and that could account for the increase in mass over past estimates, which only relied on the trawling data and images that could be taken from boats, plus those computer simulations. And so while the aerial images may be added to this increase in mass, there's also a question of whether the patch actually grew since the last measuring period. They think that possibly there was an influx of debris from the 2011 tsunami that hit Japan and washed trash out to sea, among other sources.
1: That's so gross. <laughs> I mean, did you see in this article, too, they looked at the stomach contents of like one of these marine sea turtles. Yeah. And it was so I just saw the headline. I just saw the picture and I didn't look at the, the little subtitle. And I was like, oh, a trash can. It was like legitimately like a New York City trash can, like with stuff like a foot high in it. It was mm. so disturbing. Yeah. These poor guys.
0: I mean, even though a lot of this, they say the big pieces are these bits of plastic that are made to persist in ocean environments. There are a lot of these bits of plastic that are a result of land activities. And so things like getting rid of plastic shopping bags go a long way. Plastic shopping bags, they do kind of look like jellyfish to sea turtles. And so there is a lot of this debris and waste that maybe would not end up in the stomachs of these animals if we did a better job of using reusable and sustainable products here on land.
1: Perhaps, listen, let me just tell you a very brief story. Just now I ran out of honey, went to the store to get some more honey, and it was just honey. Yeah. So I paid for it, and I'm leaving, and the lady puts it in a bag, and I said, no, 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 I don't need a bag. But because the bag, she had taken the bag off the hooks and, like, started to open the bag to put it in, no. when I said I don't need the bag, she handed me the honey and crumpled up the plastic and threw it in the trash. No. And so I was like, why do they do that? And the reason is because nobody seems to care. And if they were just to institute like a five cent per bag thing, a very yeah. easy disincentive, it would change everything. But right now, that's it. We don't care. Oh, this, their disposal. Throw it in the trash. So bad. So bad.
0: That's amazing. I mean, it, she's mm. the only person who touched it. She could have saved that bag I for know. the next the person. St-
1: what? If it were Portland, they would have she would have done something special with that bag, like weaved it into a hat or something. But here in New York City, they she just trashed it. Yep. What an a-hole. But I guess I'm an a-hole too. I should have told her <laughs> not to give me the bag. I more.
0: don't need a bag. It's just honey. I can carry it.
1: We all share responsibility, <laughs> Kiki. And you'll tell you what though. I do. I'll tell you what. Tell Some me. of us are making a difference. Some of us more than others. Okay? Like okay. these people. There's these doctors here. They say they found a game-changing stem cell treatment for MS. Okay, I, I don't really need to tell anybody here. MS is a disease that affects the brain, spinal cord, and the immune system, leads to a number of disabilities. My uncle has MS, intermittent, persistent, which is what we're talking about here. My so mom this had to MS. MS. So me. yeah, I mean, we,
0: mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. we know what
1: it is. We know what it is. We have an interest, and this is a big deal interim results. From an international trial, the stem cell transplant-based treatment showed a much higher success rate than a control group, which received a more traditional drug treatment. And the stem cell treatment, just to review, it uses chemo to wipe out a patient's immune system, and then it reboots the system using stem cells that are derived from the patient's blood and bone marrow. And these are cells that are, like, unaffected by the disease, so it's kind of a reset, and this is just over 100 people, 102 people participated in this study. This is in four cities spread from Chicago, Sao Paulo, Sheffield, and Uppsala, which is in Sweden, in case you didn't know. So this is like a global cohort, and uh, these patients, what they all had in common was they all had relapsing remitting, MS, where periods of symptomatic relapses alternate with periods of remission. A year after this treatment, there was only one patient from the stem cell group who'd relapse, and that's compared to how many? 39 people in the control group. So that's 52, by the way, in the stem cell group and 50 total patients in the control arm, and only one of the 52 relapsed versus 39 of the control drug treatment group. And this is a follow-up again three years later, and the stem cell group at this point had failed in... Three, up to three out of those 52 recipients, while the drug treatment had failed in 30 out of the 50. Bearing in mind, this drug treatment, it's continuous. So it was 39 in the first year. By the third year, I guess, they'd gotten accustomed to treatment, and 30 had failed. But still, that's three versus 30. You know, this is a crazy result. In the field, these results still not published. They're released at the annual meeting of the European Society for Bone and Marrow Transplantation in Lisbon. study is the largest of its kind. And it bolsters results from previous smaller trials that have also shown that this stem cell transplant can be effective. And, you know, any cell-based therapy is controversial. And this one in particular has been controversial in the neurological community because it does have some risk associated relative to drug treatments. In the past, an earlier trial, there were eight out of 280 participants who died from this stem cell-based therapy because it is ablative. You have to wipe out the bone marrow and all the stem cells in the patient and then replace them. So there is a period where they could succumb to this insult. But, I mean, at this point, I don't think anyone can argue with the efficacy of these results, although one caveat, you know, in the format of this approach, they can't really blind it because some patients are receiving therapy infusions, cellular infusions, and some are receiving drugs. But nevertheless, I think the you know results are so compelling that it puts a lot of, a lot of steam behind this approach. And I'll be the first to say I've been skeptical of these kind of immune modulatory approaches of mesenchymal stem cells and bone marrow autologous approaches. But it's hard for me to retain maintain that skepticism in the face of these results. So pretty amazing stuff, close to home for you and me, Kiki. I have very high hopes that this is a Malady that will be a memory for the next generation.
0: Yeah, this is again like so many other treatments for uh, MS. It, it is looking at the relapsing, remitting part of the population, which is the largest, which is the bulk of MS diagnoses. So this would potentially be a treatment for a larger group of people within the MS community, which would be, you know, it's great. And once it works for this portion, Will it potentially work for the progressive portion as well? It's exciting. I hope that this keep, continues to work moving forward because it, there's there's a lot of hope there.
1: Big deal. It <laughs> is a big deal. Yeah, it is. So kind of staying in the neighborhood, moving on to the blood, kind of a little bit of the blood there, more of the blood here, because I love the blood. This is a more basic study looking at like what governs identity, okay, and The the bottom line here is these scientists, they defined this switch that converts blood vessels to blood stem cells during embryonic development. And I think the fundamental premise that we have to understand here is that blood and the vessels, you know, they're so close, kin, and arise from the same progenitor, in fact. But this really clarifies this idea that the progenitor kind of sits on a precipice in development where both the blood is needed to convey oxygen and metabolites, but also the infrastructure to carry the blood is necessary. In very specific places that are don't happen by accident, but happen kind of stochastically, the directive to become blood and blood vessels is kind of there's a bifurcation there. And this split between these two fates ultimately makes up the whole vascular tree that feeds all our vessels throughout our lives. All right. So. A switch now has been discovered that instructs the blood vessels to become blood stem cells. All right, and this is using this single cell technology, this single cell transcriptomics. Researchers from Wellcome Sanger Institute in Cambridge and EMBL, European Molecular Biology Lab in Rome, they discovered that two sets of specific transcription factors in cells work against each other. Okay, so they work in opposition. And when the balance of these change from one group to the next, the vascular tube endothelial blood vessel cells convert to free blood cells, okay? Hmm. And this is all stemming from these seven transcription factors researchers looked at. And the reason why they looked at them because they were known to be really relevant and expressed and important in blood cancers, all right? So the idea was, is the cancerous mechanism kind of, manifesting in development as well and they found that in development in a mouse embryo that the cells that were transitioning between vascular or blood cells all of those seven genes were expressed however when they tried to like enforce the expression in an embryonic stem cell based model so they tried to express this whole cocktail all seven of them to model essentially the development of the vasculature and blood in a dish they found that the factors split pretty evenly when One group of factors was in a cell, they became vessels, and when another group of factors was in the cell, they became blood. And from this observation, they went on to show that there's a balance between these two groups of transcription factors, and high levels of each transcription factor act as a switch to direct the fate to vascular or into blood stem cells. So why is this important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. One is you could kind of use the knowledge gained from the study to – further research towards how do we create bona fide and graftable blood stem cells for blood transfusions or other kind of hematological malignancies, immunodeficiency, other diseases where the blood would be a big inroad. That's been the holy grail for stem cell biology for a long time. And the other thing is, you know, this is kind of the same processes that are in play when you have cancer formation. So understanding how this cell fate change is directed by these transcription factors that are highly relevant in cancer can help us to understand how kind of hematological malignancy arises in the first place. How do these blood cancers, how are they born? Is it uh, these factors that are kind of being imbalanced? So a nice little study. Uh, I love studies where you have self fate because it really gives you insight into how things become what they are. And what are the forces behind that mechanistically? So that's one of these studies. I love it, Kiki. I love the blood, and I love the vessels.
0: Someday they'll figure it all out, and you'll be like, ah, the blood!
1: <laughs> they <laughs> yep, know it all! I'm going to be making smoothies out of blood on that day, Kiki. I'll tell you what. Pretty Gross. Weird. Pretty weird, I know. <laughs> I apologize to all the people who are listening to the show for the first time.
0: <laughs> all right! <laughs>
1: Moving on to the less weird, but the crazy, crazy brilliant. This is a case of a simple idea, but, you know, crystal in its elegance. This is using iPS cells as a vaccine for cancer. Okay. This is coming out of Joe Wu lab at Stanford. Wu strikes again. This is not usually what he does, usually in the heart, but uh, we're going to talk about the heart later. So let's talk about his other cell stem cell paper. This is where he used irradiated induced pluripotent stem cells as a kind of vaccine for cancer. And uh, the the idea is based on the fact that tumor cells, the, the tumor phenotype or surface phenotype, the antigens that tumor cells express are very similar to what embryonic stem cells express, and this is kind of, I guess, in keeping with this idea that that little baby that you mothers look at with such joy and fondness is kind of like a little tumor (laughs) that grew inside your belly, okay?
0: I always thought of it as a parasite, but yeah, tumorous. Yes. yes.
1: As if a parasite would be less discomforting. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, the idea that they have the similar antigen profile says okay, uh, Joe Wu and his group, this isn't just Joe Wu, he's the, he's the senior corresponding author, but this is actually a big group of guys. What they did, uh, guys and girls, big group of people, what they showed essentially is if they took irradiated IPS cells, okay, So these are cells, they're not going to grow on their own, but they'll get in there and they'll have that same tumor baby antigen profile. And then the body will be like, oh, well, there goes that. I need to get after that. And you'll get a kind of immune response to that, but also to any tumor that happens to be in your body as well. Okay. So they use this in three basic ways to show that it could prevent tumor growth in mouse models of breast, lung, and skin cancer. And the three basic ways they used it were these. One, they used it as a prophylaxis. So they injected the cells, the IPS cells, irradiated to vaccinate the animal. And then they showed that the animal would not let tumor establish as easily or at all. They also used it as an adjuvant. So they took a mouse that had a tumor already and they resected the tumor, uh, highly metastatic tumors in these cases, and inoculated the mouse with the vaccine, and then resected the tumor, showed that it wouldn't grow back as easily or at all. And even using this adoptive way, which is that they inoculated one animal, generated the immune response to the tumor antigen type in that animal, and then they transferred the stem cells, the lymphoid and all hematopoietic stem cells from that animal into an animal that already had a tumor. Wow. And it showed that that immune mobilization across two mice was able to then suppress tumor growth. So this is not only a good, like, prophylaxis and adjuvant approach for people with, his, uh, you know, with tumors, but also it can help to shrink tumors. This is a major, major deal. It's so simple. You inject people with, you know, iPS cells, maybe even iPS cells derived from the tumor, irradiated it so it's not going to hurt the patient, use it as a vaccine, boom. You can mobilize the system against a malignancy. Joe, whoa, congratulations.
0: I am gobsmacked. At this study, this is, uh, to me, this is just fascinating. The idea that we could potentially take the antigen, the antigenic property of experienced T cells and give that, transfer that to another person. Say, I have breast cancer. My cells can help you not have breast cancer. Say you're a mother and your daughter is genetically profiled to have breast cancer. Could you pass on your bodily experience to your daughter to help her to avoid having breast reduction surgery, breast removal surgery, reconstruction, all the processes of that? Could you avoid that?
1: Yeah, it's a big deal. This it's is a big deal, yeah. Even off the shelf. You're describing a thing that could be like almost an off the shelf, allergenic. is that the world is wide open to this. And I love it because it's like most really transcendent ideas where just to hear it spoken, oh, you've got cancer? Why don't I inject you with some stem cells? Uh, you know, it doesn't really make sense on its face Mm-mm. until you look into the mechanism, which never really has to make sense. It just has to work.
0: <laughs> it doesn't have to make sense. Words oh, of you wisdom go. from Dave you know,
1: <laughs> I wish I could find something that doesn't make sense but works. I would, much be, I would be much happier with something that doesn't make sense and works than something that makes beautiful sense and is useless. Mm. Words... From my mouth to your ears, Kiki, and the whole world. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring swear it on. about those. Uh... Bring it on. All right, well, I'm going to bring you into the, into the close here with a vision, all right? We're all in our hyperbaric chambers with hydrogen sulfide pumping through, drinking a beautiful glass of red wine in perpetuity, living forever. That's the picture they're painting nowadays with this new study that came out of cell. This is a lab, David Sinclair and Leonard Guarente. This is a cell article from the last week. This is a big deal, I think, because it's just another in a long line of stories that really began with this idea of caloric restriction being the fountain of youth and then resveratrol and then the red wine and then that led to the sirtuins and the NAD. The bottom line is that this whole idea of caloric restriction is kind of mediated by sirtuins, okay? And sirtuins are these things that are activated by these NAD deacylases, okay? Or it's an NAD deacylase, which is dependent on NAD. Which
0: if you've ever taken physiology, you've got the, yes, you've got the cell NAD, metabolism, NAD, NAD right? NADH, it's in there, right?
1: It's- in there, NAD's <laughs> of every are, everyone's talking about ATP, ADP, NAD is the shiz, my man. That's right. Anyways, so the NAD, it plays a large part, and mechanistically it's been shown to underlie this caloric restriction life extension effect, all right? Mm-hmm. So now we're in an, another kind of model system where the same group, they've been looking at, you know, age-related muscle generation, okay? So, you know, it's a common... Thing. As you get, old, oh, there's a decline in capillary density and blood flow, and that's a major cause, a major cause of morbidity and also mortality. You know, the blood vessels are important for all organ function, and diabetes and all these other degenerative diseases, they undermine blood vessel function, but also the vessels just get old, all right? And exercise is currently the best way to delay the effects of aging in the microvasculature by promoting neovascularization, but people understand why you know, tissues become desensitized to exercise with age. So, this group, what they looked at is in skeletal muscle for this reason because it's prone to generation. It happens with age. It's really based on this lack of neovascularization. And so, the mechanism there has been shown increased muscle apoptosis of the endothelial cells, decreased neovascularization, blood vessel loss. This is reduced muscle mass or sarcopenia and a decline in strength and endurance. These are all things that can be easily measured in a mouse model. And so what the group did here is they pretty much connected the dots and showed that the same mechanism that underlies this sirtuin-mediated, resveratrol-mediated, caloric restriction-mediated extension of life and improved function, they show that this is in play also in the blood vessels. In muscles, So if you kind of override that degeneration by treating the mice with these NAD boosters, a good example is nicotinamide mononucleotide, you improve the blood flow, increase the endurance in elderly mice, and you promote an increased capillary density in the muscles, and you can augment the exercise tolerance and also add to that, you can make this effect even more potent by increasing levels of hydrogen Mm -hmm. sulfide, Mm -hmm. which is also a mimetic of this caloric restriction. And it also does this, the hydrogen sulfide, by increasing endothelial NAD levels. So I I think it's a nice, another piece of the puzzle for this fountain of youth idea. I think my takeaway is that the caloric restriction mediates its effect by numerous mechanisms that operate maybe in different organ systems in different ways. But I'm glad to see... That blood vessels and you know muscles are a big part of this because another study that recently came out I don't know if you talked about it did you see about this guy who they put him on this intense cycling regimen in his like 80s and 90s and this guy is like jacked and he's like so robust and he's he's gonna live you know his health is much better as a point so I think exercise you know diet it really pu- pulls it all together under this mechanistic umbrella of you know, the shortcut to which is red wine. So I'm psyched
0: about it. (laughs) Lots and lots and lots and lots of red wine. (laughs) Yes,
1: lots and lots, perhaps
0: a bit much. Yeah, but then unfortunately, you know, you have the side effects of alcohol, it's bad for Mm. your liver, so then we Mm. need the synthetic bioengineers to give us a new liver. Yes. I think that the balance here is really what's interesting and important. A limited number of people really want to go on caloric restriction to have these benefits in their lives. You know, maybe more people are able to get out and exercise if it's like going for a walk or doing something, not doing the crazy cycling regime, but just basic daily, get your heart rate up and move just a little bit. People can do that. But the caloric restriction part, if we can find out what's happening at a molecular enzymatic metabolic level, I mean, that's the kind of thing that we can potentially give you a pill for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> someday. I mean, maybe as I get older, I'll just be eating very little and drinking all the red wine and it won't matter anyway. But <laughs>
1: Well, Kiki, if I know you, in your old age, you'll be on the bike. You'll have a little bit of wine, not too much. <laughs> and you'll maybe, maybe have that hydrogen sulfide hyperbaric chamber. But right. I'm not worried about you. You're going to have a long time with the health that you're in. I think you're right about the balance. That's the key. You know, a uh, pill is one thing, but, you know, exercise. Don't eat too much and, right. and have some a uh, little red wine. That's a recipe for a long and brilliant life.
0: Brilliant life. Absolutely. All right. Is that it for the roundup? That's it. That is it. Okay. Before we get into the interview, I have something to tell you from Stem Cell Technologies. Science is worth celebrating. I think so. I celebrate it all the time. Breakthroughs and discoveries can change the world, and it is scientists like you, like you, Dalen, like you among our listeners, who can make this happen. To celebrate science, Stem Cell Technologies is featuring some of the scientists who have inspired and motivated them. If you're curious about who they are and what's so inspirational about their research, Visit www.stemcell.com slash scientists helping scientists. All right, on to our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Nenad Bursach. Dr. Bursach is a professor of biomedical engineering at Dalen's alma mater, Duke University, Dr. Bursach's research focuses on applications of stem cells and tissue engineering methodologies in experimental in vitro studies and cell and tissue replacement therapies. To discuss his work and latest papers talking about a novel candidate therapy for heart disease, Dr. Bursach, thank you for joining the show.
1: Great to be here. So uh, Dr. Bursach, I'm sorry, Kiki, I got to jump right out and get ahead of it. We had a recent loss. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Is that a foul? Should I call foul?
1: You can. Do
0: I get a free throw? You can,
2: yeah, I'm don't, sorry. We don't have to talk about this much. <laughs>
1: we have to broach. We're just coming out for the NCAA. Duke came close. So if there's a little bit of a cast to Dr. Bersach's voice or my own, if we sound sad, it's because Duke lost in the Elite Eight. We almost made it to the Final Four. I don't know if you have been there, Dr. Bersach, when there was a championship team. Have you been there that long that they had the championship?
2: Yeah, I've been here for 14 years, so it was not only one championship, it's been two championships. So you've been there for the madness. Tell us a little bit about that before we get started on the science, will you? It's a true madness. The whole university is is talking about one thing, and uh, yeah, this was a big disappointment against Kansas. But, you know, we'll have to leave, and uh, Grace Allen is leaving too, and so uh, now we're back to a new season and hopefully next championship.
1: Fingers crossed on that. But all right, let's get back to it. Kiki, now you can commence the science interview.
0: Dr. Bursac, could you please tell us a little bit more about your lab and your research focus, just to give the audience a little bit better idea of what it is that you work on?
2: So my lab is uh, about now about 20 members that are kind of equally split and doing two types of work. One is related to heart disease and another is to skeletal muscle disease. Heart disease has been a bread and butter for my lab for now 14 years and it's basically involved the different approaches to try to treat or improve state after a heart attack and these approaches ran from use of cell therapies to gene therapies uh, looking maybe some of the pharmacological drug therapies Major focus, of course, being stem cells and now tissue engineering as a way to try to approach this problem.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at all your work here, and we've all been around, I guess, at this age, sadly, for the whole evolution of the stem cells. And I remember when I was young, we were excited about it. Everyone was talking about regenerative medicine. We're gonna be making this organ, make that organ. We'll treat all these diseases that have been totally intractable. And then now it seems like in in the modern era we've shifted a little bit more towards like disease modeling and IPS and we'll do toxicology in addition. The whole idea of making organs again has become a little bit more, I guess, far-fetched. But I think, you know, with you, you're still doggedly in pursuit of this idea and you're going kind of on the mega scale here again relative to current approaches. You know, you're going back to patches for instance your latest work on treating disease on a real macro scale can you kind of elaborate on why you've persisted on this track and the progress you've made
2: you are absolutely right with this assessment exactly you know when the whole initial hype about you know tissue engineering started and new you know regenerative medicine and organ development it was really about making the bigger is better and totally makes sense from a regenerative point of view and organ replacement, for example, or tissue replacement, there's been a few obstacles that had people shy away a little bit from this approach towards a smaller scale. And one of these you know, major obstacles has been the ways to incorporate vasculature and vascular bed in these engineered tissues or potentially engineered organs. So making something a big scale will really uh, require the nutrition and removal of metabolites That's uh, one of the obstacles that a lot of people are working on, but still, you know, not much progress has been made. On the other hand, if you will, a lower hanging fruit, especially, you know, with the advent of induced pluripotent stem cells, which, you know, are the stem cells that are now produced by introducing, for example, four genes or foreign genes, and then going, for example, a patient's skin cells or blood cells and generating these pluripotent stem cells, this allowed us to be able now to eat tissues from humans and in a patient-specific manner. And so now that actually provides a possibility to try to make small so-called micro-tissues or microorgans that will still have features of, of a large organ or, you know, for example, if it's a brain or a heart, have still those major functional features in a dish but that you could use for drug tests and drug development, testing toxicity, having a higher throughput format. And, you know, being able to do a lot of studies, you know, that are all kind of focused on drug development. Now, on our side, you know, from the very beginning, we kind of continued in both directions while we use these smaller micro tissues and smaller scale uh, systems to test a lot of potential developments. Our major goal is actually to go with a large, what we call tissue patch. And tissue patch would be a, a basically our approach where upon heart attack, One would put the patch of living human heart tissue over the area of the heart attack in an attempt to, if you will, regenerate, but also, you know, in general, contribute to improvement in heart function in that case. It is an approach that is actually pursued by multiple people, and several groups have continued along these lines of research. But indeed, majority of people now, especially with a large pharma interest, are going into, you know, looking in the smaller systems for drug development.
0: You've been working on this patch for a while. There was a paper published last year in Nature Communications, but more recently, you have new results that have hit the news talking about your cardio patch and headlines that have stuck out to me are the ones that are like, a patch that's big enough to heal the human heart. So can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the accuracy of the headline and also where that headline is a bit misleading?
2: news is a news and sometimes it's a little bit exaggerated to attract attention. <laughs> we started this work on heart patches actually during my PhD. It was, you know, first paper we published was in 1998-99 and this was the first heart patch paper that used mammalian cells. And at that time, these were cells made from rat pups and this was the only actually available source of cardiac muscle cells. And then with time when the mouse pluripotent stem cells came, we started, you know, using them to generate patches from mouse heart patches and then finally when human cells came then we optimized all the methodologies towards a human therapy and and now really being able to make a human tissue. As we mentioned going from a small scale which is something that's used for drug development to human therapy would really require a huge scale up and when we talk about the area under the myocardial infarction or heart attack in the heart we're talking about you know, many centimeter squares of area that this injury actually, covers. And so being able to try to address this problem would really require a large piece of tissue, basically. Within uh, one infarction, one heart attack, human heart loses between 500 million and a billion of cells. And so, you know, being able to replace this large number of cells is not trivial. This title is about the heart large enough, Indeed, you know, we made actually a patch, we scaled up a patch to a size that's four times four centimeters square, so a total of 16 centimeters square. Then, in principle is a sufficiently large area that would be able to cover what's affected in a human heart overall with an impart. And so uh, from that point of view, it is large enough to cover the area. What's missing there and why it's, it may not be, you know, still as efficient as we would like it to be is, again, thickness. These are large patches, and we could scale probably the size even larger if we wanted. The uh, thickness of, of this is still below 100 microns. And the number of cells you would have in one of these patches would be several tens of millions. We would need several hundreds of millions. In principle, this is a large patch in terms of area. It's not large time, a large patch in terms of thickness. The issue being, again, you know, coming back to the same thing that I mentioned initially, how to vascularize and nutrition a thicker piece of tissue. And so this has always been an issue, and this is basically what's precluding us to be able to make now, you know, something that's a millimeter or a centimeter thick. We can stack multiple layers, which is what we do in some of our surgeries. So having, you know, this thin patch, but implanting three instead of one, that number of cells is still less significantly smaller than what we one what the person would lose during the or after the infarction
1: i mean i just want to take a step back because you know the heart's a major problem and the disease process is really kind of unique relative to other organs in the nature of the recovery the so, so-called wound healing response in the heart following a myocardial infarction is this kind of massive Insult from the lack of oxygen. And then the scar, the scar formation seems to be the real problem with recovery. The heart will never recover. It'll just carry that dead weight of the scar tissue with it. Is this a way that you can, you know, kind of, I guess, irrigate the scar and then replace the scar with a graft of this patch that's healthy that then can propagate function? In other words, is this for people with existing heart disease or heart failure due to a myocardial infarction, heart attack, or is this something that you would patch on right when you come in with a heart attack, you know, like kind of like you administer a stent?
2: Yeah, this is a really good point. So uh, the wound healing response in the heart is somewhat different, for example, what you would see in in the skin. And one of the differences is that the cells that contribute the scar tissue or collagen that's major component of scar, are actually, you know, are called myofibroblasts. And within a regular, for example, skin healing, the myofibroblasts will produce a scar initially, which is, serves there to kind of connect the things and keep them together. And myofibroblasts in the heart this will actually jump in to plug the hole almost or, or prevent from heart from bursting after the heart attack. And, you know, basically use a scar as a to confine the heart and hold it in a place. And so there is a really initially a useful functional role for the scar in the heart, as the same as in the skin. But in the skin, with time, this myofibrulas will die off and regress, and scar itself would really decrease in size. And eventually, depending, of course, on the age of a size and the site in the skin, you may end up with almost scarless healing. In the heart, on the other hand, the myofibrus persist in the site of an injury and the collagen and the scar persist with time. And this remodeling process in the heart, you know, takes within a month and then several months to really get into what we call a chronic scar. A chronic scar would be, as you said, a large collagen-rich tissue that's basically, you know, staying where live cardiac muscle cells used to be. Now it's only a scar. This therapy, you know, would, at least for now, it's not envisioned as a way to try to remove the scar. Removing the scar would be very risky for a patient. And As I mentioned, a scar there does have a role in, you know, basically, as I said, plugging the hole, trying preventing the heart from really bursting there. The way how we would envision this therapy and how it's been done also in, you know, in large animal and small animal models would be just patching on the outer surface of the heart, over the scar, and being able, hopefully, to connect this patch functionally with the surrounding living muscle tissue, such that they could work together and basically shunting over the scar. That's the current approach. I believe that it would be quite risky to try to really remove the scar. Now, there are ways to potentially reduce the scar size. This has been also one of the big things and, and you know that people have been trying in a lot of fields. So far, quite unsuccessful. There are also ways to re- intervene with the remodeling process. If you go into the therapy relatively early, you may end up in, you know, resulting in a smaller scar and more living tissue. That would be like a combination therapy where you would try to affect the remodeling process earlier on and put a patch if you can, you know, to prevent going into these last stages of very large scar, failing heart, when it's really difficult to go back from that stage, you know, back to something that's more healthy.
0: Yeah, it seems as though the uh, even putting the patch over a scar area, the scar is still going to be there. So you might even though you're improving and increasing conductivity through the heart and the connectivity of the muscle cells, but you're not going to increase the flexibility or the cardiac volume in that case without reducing the scar.
2: So it's a good point. So basically, you know, uh, the, when you add a layer, say, of a muscle over the scar, you have uh, something that would couple or connect surrounding heart muscle cells. So it would play as a, something that would improve electrically conduction of the heart if that patch can connect to the rest of the heart. So that's another question. Now, in terms of how much of a function, muscle uh, contracting function you can help of a heart, it really depends on how thick and how much muscle you add. The more muscle you add, of course, the more you will be able to help the heart. The less you add, the less of the improvement. But this is really improvement that I'm talking about is a direct improvement that this muscle, the, this piece of tissue that we would add would directly work together with the recipient heart. However, they also possibility and it's been shown also in small and large animal studies of a uh, paracrine action. So the secreted factors from cells that are going and then helping survival, formation of new blood vessels, preventing death, and maybe engaging some of the endogenous regenerative programs inside the heart to work. So there is uh, two ways to help the heart with a patch. One is direct way which we all want to happen, which is electrically coupling with the rest of the heart and working together in synchronized fashion to help directly mechanical function. And another is secreting the super factors in the localized fashion there in the scar area where things are the most critical and then helping right there through these soluble factors.
1: You're saying you have this combined effect, right? You have the mechanical as well as the paracrine support. Is that, would that be like engineered factors? You would make the cells express or they would be expressing what like they normally express or progenitor cells normally express within the heart?
2: Surely, yes. So, uh, you know, so far people have shown that actually even without really trying to genetically alter the cells, just factors that cells secrete, soluble factors as well as these micro or actually nano vesicles called exosomes, some of the factors that are secreted by the cells themselves and they even on their own without any genetic manipulations of cells they've been shown to be beneficial to the heart. Of course, you can try to engineer something on the top of that, using cells to serve as a, as a secreting factory of some secreted factors as a factory, as a producer. But in, in general, that may not be necessary. What's the longevity of these graphs? Have you done in like a syngenetic
1: model to see if you were to take an IPS cell from a patient, for instance, and graft it?
2: Is there any reason why I wouldn't stay there for indefinitely, a patch? Yes, exactly. So that's a good question. So when we implant the, these patches in um, immunocompromised animals, those that can take cells from one species to another, we went up to a two months, you know, and saw no change in the graft size. Some other people have gone up to six months and longer, and again saw a really good engraftment and survival and basically no loss of cells. One of the largest issues is that actually heart cells are non-renewing and they stay there. And, you know, when we, if a person dies at, at age of 80, more than 60, 70% of their cells are actually the same heart cells that they got born with. So heart cells can stay a century without need for renewal because there is no really stem cells that are helping heart renewal. And as I said, you know, while in this case that actually would be good because it would suggest that the patches would, could last a lifelong. When implanted, at the same time, that mean, you know, that's that been an issue because there's not a good stem cell or progenitor cell to help regenerate heart from inside. But yeah, there is a potential for the patch to stay lifelong based on the known uh, longevity of cardiac muscle cells in our bodies.
0: In your paper from last year in Nature Communications, you mentioned that there's a separating layer. There's a non-cardiac layer that separates these patches, these grafts, from the host cardiac muscle cells. And so it keeps them from being able to functionally couple. Do you have any understanding of what's going on there?
2: Yeah, so that's been shown in multiple studies, and we've seen it in our study too. Once the patch is implanted over the heart, there is a formation of, uh, you know, few cell layer thick, almost an insulator between the patch and the host or recipient heart. The only thing we know about this layer is that these are not muscle cells. It's really not true where they originate from, but likely they originate from the host, so from the recipient rather than from the patch itself. Those cells actually represent a barrier for uh, you know, seamless electrical coupling that we would like to see between the patch and the heart. So there are ways to try to go about this problem, and this is something that we've been actively working on. And you know, but it's definitely one of the reasons why so far the patch therapy, really the most of success with it, and even in large animals, has been shown to happen through this paracrine action rather than direct coupling. That's one of the two major obstacles that I've seen with the patch therapy. One is making a thicker patch, as I mentioned, and the second is making a patch electrically couple, integrate with the host heart.
1: So you know, everyone is obsessed with the heart. Of course, it's a major killer. But you also work with other muscle types. Can you tell us anything about like, what you're doing in other fields? I know you were making skeletal muscle bundles from iPS cells. Is there something other than heart disease where regenerative approaches and cell-based approaches could be a major boon, another disease type that you could, or you're focused on right now?
2: Yeah, so we are working on a skeletal muscle and skeletal muscle uh, disease is actually, you know unlike a heart, which is a localized small organ, you know, skeletal muscle is our largest organ in the body. It's about 40% of our mass, in some people less, in some people more. It's also kind of a very interesting organ because it's a very similar in its appearance and to heart muscle. But while heart muscle is one of our, the least regenerative, if not the least regenerative organs, skeletal muscle is one of the most regenerative organs. And because it does have a, a pool of stem cells that can become muscle cells, and the name of these cells are satellite cells. People have been looking before in, in a various congenital diseases, such as different types of dystrophies, even, you know, a muscle loss due to trauma or a big injury, and trying to perform cell therapies where they would add these satellite cells, the stem cells from muscle, try to expand them to have enough of the cells that would be then able to generate new muscle. And they put them back either in the site of injury or try to deliver them systemically throughout the entire body, throughout bloodstream and then try to affect uh, congenital or genetic diseases in in muscle. So far, the cell therapies for muscle disease have not really been successful, and the major reasons being that these satellite cells, once taken out of the body, these stem cells from muscle, as they're expanding, they actually lose the ability to survive and build new muscle. With these cells actually being injected back or injected in the injured muscle, we haven't seen much of engraftment and haven't seen much formation of new muscle. For the genetic diseases where all muscles are affected, it's not easy to perform a systemic approach where you would inject cells and and hope that they would home to all muscles in the body. Still have been, you know, clinical trials with the cells that are called mesangioblasts, and which are basically some type of a parasite, perivascular cells, but the cells that also can nicely home in, in many muscles, and have been shown to be able to produce muscle cells. Unfortunately, this all worked on the smaller and somewhat medium-sized animals. When we've done clinical trials, by the sheer number of cells that were needed for this it required a lot of expansion of the cells out you know, in the dishes. And this expansion actually inhibits the muscle-forming potential of these cells. So at the end, when these cells were back-injected in humans, we didn't see much effect. So for now, the common dogma about cell therapies and muscle is that cell therapies could potentially be used in, to treat local muscle loss and or be targeted to specific muscles. Our lab has been you know, looking in tissue engineering as a way to generate functional muscle in a dish. And then for two potential purposes, purposes here, though, the major purpose is actually drug development and development of new therapies. But there is a potential also for generative therapies of small muscles, such as Muscles of lips or eyes, sphincter muscles, and some other muscles. For now, you know, again, the organ size or size of a tissue is a limiting factor with working with muscle. There is a possibility, as I mentioned, for small muscles, and then a lot of our work has been actually done for drug development. So we've made a couple of major breakthroughs. We published in eLife in 2015, and now this new publication, new Nature Communication, have been the first time able to make a contracting functional muscle from human cells. So before, you know, uh, people have been able to isolate human, you know, muscle cells, expand them in a dish, but then when they would try to put them and make something that really contracts, can make a twitch or tetanic contraction, that has not been possible. So with these, you know, recent studies, by using the tissue engineering principles and three-dimensional cell cultures, we've been able to first show that this can be done from primary muscle biopsies, just a little, little biopsies that we could then expand the cells from. And then from iPS cells, in which, you know, we can now really have a large amount of cells and be able to generate human working muscle from different patients and with, for different muscle diseases. And we are applying this now for a variety of genetic diseases to try to study them in addition to human diseases and then looking in potential for drug therapies and gene therapies for these diseases.
0: It's a big playing field. There are so many, probably so many factors involved. I want to go back very briefly to the idea of the 3D cell culture. There are a lot of companies right now and also researchers in the academic space that are developing cell scaffoldings for various cellular cultures. Where do you personally see this fitting into things like allowing vascularization of these cultures and the growth of your muscle tissue into larger, more complex tissues?
2: The scaffolding is a very important component of tissue engineering, and uh, you know, for us, for our focus on skeletal muscle and heart muscle, a lot of the we try a number of three-dimensional scaffolding to generate functional tissues. And the, which scaffolding you choose really depends of, on the cell type used, the matrix that needs to be secreted, mechanical properties, and uh, being able to make a synthetic scaffold gives a lot of advantages because you have a good control over chemical and maybe biomechanical properties of these scaffolds. And so a lot of people will go for trying to design artificial, you know, scaffold, so synthetic scaffold, to be able to, you know, generate their tissues. For muscle and for heart, we've tried a lot of these scaffolds, and it turns out that really the naturally-derived matrices or gels, such as collagen or fibrin, which is the main component of our blood clots, turn out to be the best scaffolds for three-dimensional culture of of muscle cells and heart cells, and for the reason that they have the largest number of cell attachment sites. So the cells within this three-dimensional environment can really attach to multiple sites and then spread and connect. And, you know, muscle and heart are both very cellular tissues with high cell densities, and being able to spread and connect and make a very dense tissue is crucial for their function. So for us, natural scaffolds work the best, Natural scaffolds have a drawback that there is a lot to lot variability so each time you try buy a new lot of a, you know that matrix you need to readapt a little bit you know your culture procedure to get again to the same functioning tissue the other tissues such as for example cartilage or bone or uh, liver or, or others can do well, very much in different types of synthetic scaffolds. So a lot of synthetic scaffolds developed for this purpose. And in terms of vascularization, indeed, you know, there are people who've been, you know, looked at the matrices to support vascular formation of vascular structures. But so far, the big challenge has been to make a perfusable vascular structure. So while you can generate a capillary bed within the three-dimensional gel-like, you know, matrix, you cannot, do not have a good access or like arterial, and venous, mimics you know, where you could perfuse the blood from artery type of a vessel and then you know remove the blood.
1: Just to close here, I know you're uh, very well funded in numerous projects by uh, the NIH, but is there anything in your research uh, repertoire there that you see moving into human trials
2: sooner rather than later? Well, you know, the patch therapy is something that we've been now testing in large animal models, such as you know pigs that undergo Uh, myocardial infarction we are closer than we've ever been but i don't know if i would call it close i mean people ask that question all the time and i don't want to give a a false hope or you know uh, i don't want to be too conservative but i would say probably several years to maybe uh, 10 years of you know before we really are ready i would say to try this in humans to try it with a therapy that would really be using the full potential of uh, engineered patch as a matter of fact you know there are already clinical trials with engineered patch friends with using the patch as a paracrine factory so not with cells that are not really becoming functional heart muscle cells but are some type of a progenitor cell that has a rich repertoire and secreted factors there have been few of these trials in several patients they've shown to be safe and so there is a path out there to get into clinical trials we are really shooting for being able to fully utilize the patch and as you mentioned, there are a couple obstacles that we need to overcome before that happens.
0: I think the way you're working on it, those obstacles, you'll just jump right over them. Smooth sailing. <laughs>
2: Uh, I wish you right.
0: Yes, (laughs) we'll get right through it. So this has just been fascinating hearing about your work, and I do wish you all the best in your future research. And I can't wait to hear about this multi-layered getting way, way past that hundred micron thickness. Let's get into some thick muscle tissue. I can't wait to hear about that development soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today.
1: All right, my man from Duke, fellow alumnus, crying. I could see the tears streaked all over his face from that loss. Oh, my God, it was hard. Like I said at the Open, I'll tell you what, Dr. Bursich, he's already moving on. He's probably getting to make some little muscle patch graft on some of the Duke freshmen's arms so that they could make that shot that Grayson missed.
0: (laughs) Oh, Grayson. But he got it in, and the very last shot he made... It sunk right in the through the basket. So even though he missed three pointers, it was bad. Last shot went in. Last shot of his collegiate basketball career was worth something.
1: Yeah, well, that doesn't mean much to me, Kiki. All right. <laughs> I'm glad that you're oh, I'm glad you and Grayson right. are pleased with the outcome.
0: I'm pleased with great. I'm like, oh, Grayson, that's right. I don't know. Get out of here. Let all these freshmen upstarts come on in. Those young freshman basketball players that are towering at seven, whatever. I think they've all had muscle grafts
1: for sure. I mean, you got it nowadays. If you <laughs> want to compete, you got to graft. Well, I mean, there's that. But maybe next year we'll come with some more enhanced individuals uh, with the help of Dr. Bursich. Maybe not next year if, if I know what a careful science he is. But he Absolutely. said it. What did he say? Uh, several years and i several, like that prediction.
0: several years it wasn't the 5 to 10 years although he did say at least a decade he was several yes yeah, several years for this technology to really bear out and to be useful but I, I thought it was interesting he said that clinical trials are already underway investigating the paracrine action of mm-hmm. patches like these mm-hmm. and so that is going to lay the groundwork for the next steps to come and that i don't that it's really exciting
1: yes like he said a path it's a path a clinical application, and that's the key. There that's is a kind of a, a template there.
0: Yes, it is. But we usually follow a template, right? We have our show. We start it out, do the stories, the roundup. We have our interview. And then we get to this part of the show where we close the show with our rant, mm, the Stem Cell the Podcast rants. rant. It's usually our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that may or may not bother you out there. But today, I mean, we're gonna rant, but what are we ranting about today, Daylin?
1: Kiki, I, I have to say, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a rant. It's been a long time coming, all right? The <laughs> yes. rant, we live, in a, we live in a culture of ranting. We live in a culture of everyone feeling that they are entitled to share their grievances openly and aggressively. And, you know, what I'm noticing is that doesn't create any more efficient discourse. It doesn't <laughs> no, solve it anybody's doesn't. problems. It's just an opportunity to vent. And for that reason alone, it maybe has a place. But, you know, I think it's time to to be more positive and to stop with all the, ra- you know, we're ranting about rants, the rants, yeah, that's the rants. Right so much ranting and and we're not going to let it happen. We're not going to just be a part of the problem, maintain the status quo. I think it's time, Kiki. I think it's time to stop ranting.
0: I mean, I I'm there. I mean, I like the occasional vent, let the steam off so that, you know, I don't explode, you know, don't keep pushing it down inside, but at the same time, I mean, I go on Twitter and it's like People venting. They have more character space to vent even more these days. And now everybody's venting about ah delete Facebook. Everybody's venting about this or that or the other thing. And oh my gosh, do I have to be negative? Can no. we I mean what two years now or so? I've yeah. I've been I've been negative with you. I've i
1: oh, sorry. <laughs>
0: to try and dig deep on this part of the show <laughs> show after show after show
1: <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm so sorry kika i really brought you down i really i mean <laughs> you're really still down. pretty uni- uniquely positive i i i would say you know borderline sunshine but
0: uh, <laughs> not super sunshine that's i right. brought you I down i like being I borderline that's good
1: borderline uh, a <laughs> few so I don't know can we stop the rant I mean can we do that I think we can leave it up to the audience I'm done with the ranting I don't want to be like President Trump I don't want to be like any of these I I didn't know how ubiquitous the rant was and I'm sick of being such a group ranter I'm ready to be positive we're going to come up with something else but we're going to we're going to create new formats here that are positive and they're going to give us insight into what we can do not what we can complain about what do you yeah,
0: think? I think? I think this is great. But yeah, let's hear from everybody. If you really think we should keep the rant, you need to let us know. So you can tweet to us at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at StemCellPodcast.com. Let us know, should we keep the rant? Because if we do not hear a huge ranting outcry from you, it's Gone. Gone. Gone because we can fill this time with something better. Let's be positive people. Yeah. Yeah. Let's think of something else. And if you have ideas about what we should use this time in the show for, you can let us know about that also. But on that note, we're going to close this episode, conclude our episode 113 of the stem cell podcast. Be sure to tune in for the next episode. 114 that will not have a rant unless you tell us to keep it. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, Dalen.
1: Thank you, Kiki. Positive. Keep it positive.